0: and grab your bibles and turn to the book of judges please chapter 13 judges chapter 13 if you didn't bring a bible with you i encourage you to use the pew bible and open it up we'll have a chance to read the passage you'll have an opportunity to to look at that and just confirm that what i'm saying is actually in the bible we uh, believe here in expository preaching and The need to say what God has said. You don't need to hear my good advice. You need to hear what the word of God says. And so we want to make sure that we stay close uh, to that word. We are continuing on in the book of Judges this morning. As we have noted in previous sermons, the book of Judges tells the story of the Judges following a particular pattern. There's a a very distinct pattern that the writer of Judges gives to us in the very early chapters, chapter 2, of how he's going to structure the story of the judges as he moves forward. And so that, that pattern is, we could just summarize it in four words. Sin, judgment, misery, and deliverance. Israel sins against the Lord. God sends his judgment upon Israel because of their sins. Israel cries out to the Lord for help. And then God graciously saves his people using one of their own, using a judge, someone that he raises up, a deliverer from within their midst that we call a judge. The book calls a judge. And that judge, once he has brought deliverance to Israel, then rules over Israel or provides leadership for the nation of Israel for the rest of his lifetime. And so there are six of these judges, these six of these sets of stories in the book of Judges that, that comprise the the, the, the the vast majority of the book. And each of those stories follows this particular pattern. But every time we move from one story to the next, the situation gets a little bit worse for the next judge, right? So you move from o, a, Othniel to Ehud, as we move from one to the next, things, the situation just gets a little bit worse. The sins become more offensive, become worse in the eyes of the Lord. The, the judgment that God sends is more severe. The suffering is, is more miserable. And then the extent of the salvation is less glorious, and the length of that salvation is Less in terms of shorter in time. Well, this morning we are moving into the last cycle of the stories of the Judges. So we've been through five. We're now entering into the sixth and final cycle that deals with the most famous, but also the most corrupt and probably the most tragic of the Judges, and that is Samson. And yet even in Samson's story, we see the beauty of God's providence at work. And I think we'll see that as we go through Samson's story over the next four chapters. The story of Samson is told from chapters 13 to 16, four chapters total, and today we're going to look at the first one of those, the opening chapter. This is what we would call, I guess today we would call, Samson's origin story, right? If you're watching a TV show or you're watching a movie, you have an origin story. You have sort of the the story that tells you sort of how things got started. Chapter 13 functions as an origin story. Samson really only appears at the very end, but this tells us how... how God raised him up, what God was doing in in his life, his family's life, and the life of the nation of Israel to bring him into this place, into this position. Let's look at Judges 13. I'm going to read verses 1 to 25, the whole chapter this morning. So follow along in your copy of God's Word, and I'll be reading from mine. And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hand of the Philistines for forty years. There was a certain man of Zora of the tribe of the Danites, whose name was Manoah. And his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said to her, Behold, you are barren and have not born children, but you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore be careful and drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb, And he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. Then the woman came and told her husband, A man of God came to me, and his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God, very awesome. I did not ask him where he was from, and he did not tell me his name. But he said to me, Behold, you shall conceive and bear a son. So then drink no wine or strong drink, and eat nothing unclean. For the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb to the day of his death. Then Manoah prayed to the Lord and said, O Lord, please let the man of God whom you sent come again to us and teach us that what we are to do with the child who will be born. And God listened to the voice of Manoah. And the angel of God came again to the woman as she sat in the field. But Manoah, her husband, was not with her. So the woman ran quickly and told her husband, Behold, the man who came to me the other day has appeared to me. And Manoah arose and went after his wife and came to the man and said to him, are you the man who spoke to this woman? And he said, I am. And Manoah said, Now when your words come true, what is to be the child's manner of life and what is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, Of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or any, any, any unclean thing. And, I, and, all, and, and all that I commanded her, let her observe. Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, please let us detain you and prepare a young goat for you. And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, if you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. For Manoah did not know that it was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to the angel of the Lord, what is your name? So that when your words come true, we may honor you. And the angel of the Lord said to him, why do you ask my name, seeing it is wonderful? So Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it to the rock and offered it on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. And when the flame went up toward heaven from the altar, the angel of the Lord went up in the flame of the altar. Now Manoah and his wife were watching, and they fell on their faces to the ground. The angel of the Lord appeared no more to Manoah and to his wife. Then Manoah knew that he was the angel of the Lord. And Manoah said to his wife, We shall surely die, for we have seen God. But his wife said to him, If the Lord had meant to kill us, He would not have accepted a burnt offering and a grain offering at our hands, or shown us all these things, or now announced to us such things as these. And the woman bore a son and called his name Samson. And the young man grew, and the Lord blessed him. And the Spirit of the Lord began to stir him in Mahanadan between Zorah and Eshtaol. We can see from this passage, I think, Four part. We're going to break it down into four parts this morning, and use those parts to be our outline today. And first, we're going to see in verse one that there's a familiar note about Israel's spiritual condition. Secondly, we see in verses two to fourteen the divine plan for Israel's deliverance. Third, we'll see in verses fifteen to twenty-four the spiritual dullness that was surrounding God's plan from uh, Samson's parents. And then fourth, we'll see God's wonderful providence in action at the very end. Of the chapter, so let's consider first verse one. We see in verse one a familiar note about Israel's spiritual condition. Before we before we get, really get there, let me just remind us just of the of the context here. Back in chapters uh, eleven and twelve, God had brought salvation to Israel through the judge Jephthah. They had been oppressed by the Ammonites for eighteen years, and and God had raised up Jephthah to lead the Israelites out of that oppression to fight against the Ammonites and to remove the oppression that they were uh, bringing to the Israelites. And yet, when that was over, we see in chapter 12, verse 7, that Jephthah only uh, ruled over Israel, if you will, only provided leadership as a judge for six years. That is by far the, the shortest length of time of any judge. In fact, this is the first time and really the only time in the book of Judges where the time of salvation, the years of salvation, six years, was less than the number of years they spent under oppression, 18 years under the Ammonites. And so it's a very short time, and we're beginning to see now, because of that very short respite, the the real problem in Israel. Because we see that by the time we get to chapter 13, verse 1, Israel had not wasted an opportunity to return to their wicked ways. In fact, the writer of Judges states what has now become to us a familiar refrain. If you look at verse 1, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. Now, that statement of how he normally introduces these stories of the Judges, the cycle of Judges, is far shorter to those descriptions provided elsewhere in the book. And we might be thinking, there are some people who think that, well, he's just minimizing this, right? Just kind of glossing over it to kind of get to the real point of the story. I don't think that's the case here, though. I don't think he's minimizing or overlooking or glossing over Israel's sin problem. I think it's just the opposite. I think he's actually drawing attention to it by saying so little about it. It seems as if he is saying here, well, here we are again. We are in the same familiar spot, time after time after time. God has been extraordinarily kind and patient with his people by sending them saviors to deliver them from the misery that they had brought upon themselves. It was their own sin that, that caused God to bring judgment against them. But God has been so gracious and kind to deliver them up out of that misery and suffering and judgment. Even back in chapter 10 when God said he would not save them any, anymore, he still saved them in chapter 11. God won't abandon His people because He is gracious and merciful and compassionate and faithful. He has committed Himself to His people because He has committed Himself to His mission of rescuing all sinful people. Israel had sinned yet again here in chapter 13, verse 1. And they do so because this is the core spiritual problem that has not yet been resolved. This is the, the ground zero of the issue that they are facing. It has not yet been resolved, this, this problem of, of, of sin, this problem of inner rebellion against God. Though God had redeemed his people from Egypt several hundred years before, though he had made them his special people, though he had entered into a covenant with them, Israel's problem is the same problem it's the fundamental problem of every person who lives and that is a sinful corrupt degenerate heart now it's easy for us to bash on the israelites and say man these people just don't get it what is wrong with them they're so sinful they're so rebellious they're so depraved and yet why has this been revealed to us in the word because the word is a mirror for us to see ourselves Israel illustrates our spiritual problem, that apart from the regenerating work of God in our hearts through the gospel, we also do evil in the sight of the Lord. And we do it not just once or in isolated incidences, but we do it over and over and over again. We do it continually just as Israel did. The Israelites kept returning to their sins because they were spiritually incapable of doing anything else. And so again and again and again, they kept forsaking the Lord and worshiping other gods. Now, a holy God cannot allow a sinful people to, re- to abide in their sin forever. God must render justice against a people who will flout His laws. And especially, this is not again just an Israel problem, this is a human problem, Right? People may say, well, you know what, they don't have the Bible. They don't have the Bible. They don't have, they don't have the special revelation that God gave to his people. Well, God has given to us the knowledge of himself in creation. He has is, he is put into the very fabric of creation certain laws that are innate. He has given to us a conscience that would allow us to know the difference between right and wrong. And so we see here that we have this same problem just as they did. And because We need the regenerating work of the the Lord. He has been so gracious to provide that. But apart from that, we will suffer the same kind of judgment and worse than Israel did. We are spiritually incapable of doing anything else, which is why, apart from the regenerating work of God through the Holy Spirit, we will continue to go back to our sin over and over and over again. And so, He must send His judgment. And he does so here against Israel, just as he has done previously. Every time we've gone through each story, we see that when the people sin, at some point God sends judgment to the people because of their sin. And so God sent judgment once again in this situation by sending another foreign nation, this time the Philistines, to come and oppress his people because of their sin. And this time, the Philistine oppression lasts for 40 years. That's the longest of any any judgment that God brought to his people in the book of Judges. So for 40 years, the Israelites languish under the hand of God's judgment through the Philistines that he had raised up for this purpose. And again, why does God do this to his own people? Because they've sinned. And this is what sin deserves. A sinful deed deserves God's righteous judgment. The scripture tells us that the wages of sin is death, the, the payment, right? Just as you go to work and receive a wage, you receive a fair compensation for the work that you do, that you've agreed upon with, with your employer. So also the wages for sin, the right and fair compensation that God gives to us because of our sin is death. And the Bible understands death as more than just the cessation of earthly life, right? Death doesn't just simply end your life. There is a spiritual reality to death that continues on into eternity. And that spiritual reality means that we are cut off from the life of God. Not just for a time, but forever. And to be cut off from the life of God means that we also will endure His unending, inconceivable misery. And God's judgment is miserable for the one who must experience it. We see, not so much in this story, but we've seen throughout the book of Judges, that that Israel groaned under the weight of God's judgment every time He sent it. Again, the writer doesn't note that misery here, but over the next three chapters, we'll see that fleshed out more. We'll see Israel suffering more and more under the weight of God's judgment. But again, it's not as if God had committed some injustice against his people. The Israelites are getting exactly what they deserve. No more, but no less. And if they can't bear the weight of God's judgment, then what does that say about the offensiveness of their sin before God? So we think about the reality here at the end of verse 1, and for those of us who have been going through Judges now for, I don't remember, I think it's like 14 or 15 weeks, it's very familiar to us, right? And it's almost like we can become desensitized to it. I don't want us to become desensitized to it. Because even though it is familiar, it is sad. This is just what Israel does. And so their situation, once again, seems hopeless. But I also want us to understand that unless God intervenes, and we praise God that we have, that's the good news that we'll share in a little bit. Unless God intervenes, the same spiritual reality is true for people living today. And again, if you're wrestling with this, how do I stand before the Lord? Am I really even a sinner? I'd like to talk to you more about that. I don't have time to really convince you of that right now. I just want to lay that out there to you. I want you to understand that every human being is like the Israelites here. That we are facing the same spiritual reality today that Israel faced then. And certainly you can see that the world is bad, right? Turn on the news, you can see. It felt like this week I just was bombarded with all of the evil and degenerate things, the repulsive things that our world was doing and throwing in our faces. And yet, the fact of the matter is, it's easier to point the finger at somebody else and not realize that I am that man too. That I am just as sinful as those out there. That I just as much deserve the fair and right judgment of God for my sin as those out there do for theirs. It's only when we can begin to understand that. It's only when we begin to feel the spiritual burden of that that we can be prepared to receive God's good and gracious salvation. And so the real great benefit of verse 1 being super short and truncated here is that we get to the good news a little bit faster than we have in the past. And so let's consider that, God's plan for Israel's deliverance. We notice in verses 2 through 14 that God has a plan to deliver his people from their misery. And that plan centers around an individual that is yet to be born. We see in verse 3 that an angel visits an unnamed barren woman, and he informs her that she will conceive and bear a son. But that child is no ordinary child. That child has a special destiny. He will be a deliverer. And he will be the one, it says in verse 5, to begin the process of delivering Israel from the Philistines, the ones who are oppressing the Israelites. Now, to mark the uniqueness and the specialness of this child, the angel informs the barren woman that the child will be a Nazarite. Now, a Nazarite is a person who makes a vow of consecration ...to the Lord. Okay? It's just a, a special vow, a vow of consecration to the Lord. So by making this vow, this person, by taking this vow, the Nazarite vow... ...they are consecrating themselves to the Lord. They are setting themselves apart to the Lord for a special purpose. And you can read more about this vow. I don't have time for it now. But in Numbers chapter 6, verses 1 to 21... ...there are the regulations that specify that govern this vow. Some of those things appear here, and we'll, we'll touch on them. But this was a way in which a person could set themselves apart... To the Lord. Why would they do this? Well, because in Israel, in the Israelite time, the only way to be set apart from the Lord was to be a priest or a Levite. And this isn't, in in that culture, it wasn't like someone saying, I have a calling to become a pastor. I have a a calling to become uh, someone who would be a, a minister or a missionary. I can choose to set myself apart for the Lord. That was belonging only to the priest and to the Levites. So you had to be born into that family to be someone who was specially consecrated to the Lord. But the Nazarite vow was a, a special grace, a special provision that God gave to the broader Israelite community so that someone who wanted to separate themselves to the Lord could do so. Now, there were four main features to the Nazarite vow. I just want to touch on these very very quickly and briefly because they, they do have impact here for, for uh, Samson. First, the Nazarite vow was open to either men or women. A man or a woman could take on the Nazarite vow. Secondly, it was voluntary, right? No one was compelled to do this. So if you were outside the tribe of Levi, if you were, say, to the tribe of Judah, and you wanted to set yourself apart to the Lord, you could take on this Nazarite vow. There was nothing restricting you to do that. There was no one compelling you to do that, but it was a voluntary vow that one could make to the Lord. It was a temporary vow, so it wasn't a lifelong thing. It was a period of time, maybe a, maybe a week, maybe a month, maybe a few months, maybe an entire year, but it was generally, generally temporary, not lifelong. The Nazarite vow also required the, the practitioner, the person making the vow, to avoid three things. A Nazarite had to avoid any great products, so grapes, raisins, juice, wine, those were all prohibited, as well as strong drinks. Alcoholic beverages were prohibited for the Nazarite. Nazarites were also prohibited from touching anything that was dead, so no touching of any corpses. And Nazarites were restricted from using razors. They were not to cut their hair, right? They were to let their hair grow. And so these features were all part of the Nazarite vow. So if someone wanted to take a 30-day Nazarite vow, they had to abstain from the products of, of, of grapes for 30 days. They had to, uh, they had to not touch anything dead for 30 days. They had to let their hair grow out and not cut it for 30 days, okay? So as long as you had As long as you took on this vow, you had to abide by these regulations. And these are all features. These three features here are all reiterated to uh, Samson's mother, right? To the barren woman. When the angel appears to her and he he repeats these these restrictions, all of them are, are appearing here. But there are some significant differences between the ordinary Nazarite vow and between this woman's son. First, this woman's son's Nazarite status is not voluntary right samson doesn't get to pick and choose whether he wants to be a nazirite nazirite he is compelled to do so god has ordained him and set him apart to be a nazirite second this woman's son his nazirite status is not temporary it's not just for a limited period of time but it is permanently right it's for the duration of his life. And it's even not even for the duration of his life. It even precedes his life. It goes back to his life in the womb. So not just from birth to death, but from his conception to his death. So for the duration of, of her pregnancy, the mother must also abide by these Nazarite restrictions. Now, the angel of the Lord doesn't explain here to the woman why this child must be a Nazarite. Because being a Nazarite wasn't a prerequisite, right, for delivering God's people. None of the other judges had had to take on this vow. All we know about Samson in this case is that he was marked from the very beginning of his life for a special purpose. And that purpose was to do God's redemptive work among the Israelites, to save them from the Philistines. So upon receiving this news from the angel, the woman reports all this information to her husband Manoah. He was not there for this encounter. And so he prays for the angel to return because he wants to hear the instructions for himself, But he wants to have further explanation about this child, what that child is going to do, what they're going to be, what the mission of that child is going to be. And so God graciously sends the angel back. Manoah asks his questions, but the angel doesn't really say anything new. He simply regurgitates the instructions from the previous encounter. Manoah is here eager to find out about this child. What's God's determination about him? What has God set him apart for? What is his mission going to be? But the angel doesn't answer those questions. He simply reiterates the previous instructions to Manoah's wife about how she must faithfully observe those restrictions, requirements of the Nazarite vow. And before we move on anymore with the story, there's two observations I want to make here. I think they're important. First, I want you to notice that before any action is taken, before any of this happens, God had a plan to save his people, right? God is caught off not one bit by Israel's present sinfulness or her perpetual rebelliousness. God is not surprised by Israel's misery. In fact, very much like the israelite situation at the beginning of exodus in exodus chapter 2 god knows all this god is aware of all this this is not any kind of surprise to him he knows all of israel's problems so before any of these circumstances came to be god already knew what he would do he already determined to save his people he already devised a plan to save them So when God sends the angel of the Lord to Manoah's wife, He wasn't trying to assess the situation. He wasn't trying to to discover what's going on, what's happening, how He needed to, what information He needed to glean, and what information He needed to devise a plan. He was already enacting the plan. The plan is set in motion when the angel of the Lord arrives. And even though it would still be decades before God saved Israel, He was sovereignly at work to initiate and oversee His redemptive plan. So that it would come to fruition. And so for us, we can be encouraged to know that God is sovereign over all of life. God is sovereign over all of history. And even more encouraging to know is that God is sovereign over our salvation. God is sovereign over our salvation, even before the foundation of the world, Ephesians says. God determined to save a people. He designed a plan to save a people for himself. The second observation I would make here is that this story foreshadows for us how God would save us. This story foreshadows how God would save us. Yes, it was God's plan for Israel, but it foreshadows, it points ahead to our own salvation. God, we see from this story, would provide a Savior marked out even from before birth. And although our Savior was not a Nazarite, The announcements about his conception and his birth reveal that he was no ordinary individual. That he was the one whom God had separated from the rest of humanity to save sinful people. The Savior also would be the very Son of God. Not just a human being, but the Son of God made flesh, incarnated. And so in doing that, in In the Son of God incarnating Himself and coming into this world, He would become like us in our humanity, but He would also still retain His deity, the fullness of His deity, so that He would magnify and display, reveal the fullness of God's glory. Our Savior, we read in the Gospel of Luke, would be conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of a virgin. And yet, He would also be the heir to King David's throne. And by that, He would rule over God's people forever. The Savior would also be the first to be acknowledged by another lifelong Nazarite, one of only three in the Scriptures. We know him as John the Baptist. And you remember that encounter when the pregnant Mary goes to her cousin, the pregnant Elizabeth. That in Elizabeth, John the Baptist leaped up in his womb when confronted face to face with the preborn Savior. When the preborn Savior was in the very presence of this Nazarite, he would leap in his mother's womb. And that testimony in his mother's womb to his mother alone would be the first of a lifelong ministry of preparing God's people for the coming of God's Savior. This Savior also would save his people from their sins, we read in Matthew. How would he do that? He would ultimately die on the cross as a substitutionary sacrifice, paying the penalty of our sins and reconciling us to God. The Savior would be proclaimed by a heavenly host to ordinary shepherds doing their ordinary job of watching sheep in an ordinary field on an otherwise ordinary night. And it would be those angels who would announce to the shepherds, For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior who is Christ the Lord. This Savior whom God would send would be named Jesus. The Lord saves and he would be named Emmanuel, God with us. And by those names, he would be marked off to perform his ministry of salvation and redemption that he had come to accomplish. And in doing so, he would he would fulfill God's redemptive purpose for sinners. So Samson's story here is a shadow of the reality that would come. And as we read about Samson's disappointing life, we are left longing for a Savior whom God would send to truly save us. Of course, from our perspective, we can see that God fulfilled that divine plan. God would save us, not by sending another disappointing judge, but by sending His own Son, the Incarnate Word, who would faithfully submit Himself to this redemptive plan. So friends, God had a plan to save his people. He had a plan in in Samson's day to save Israel. He had a plan from eternity to save us. And so as we read in the scriptures here, God is enacting his plan for Israel. He was working that plan towards his fulfillment. And even in the working of this plan, he was at the same time working towards that greater plan to redeem us. Let's consider Next, the spiritual dullness of Samson's parents. In verses 15 to 24, the spiritual dullness of Samson's parents. And before we think about that in particular, let's just kind of walk through the next ten verses, just kind of catch ourselves up on the story. So after the angel here confirms that initial revelation to Manoah and his wife, Manoah asked the angel to stick around so that he could prepare a meal for him. Now, Manoah, neither Manoah nor his wife at this point realize that this angel is an angel. They've been calling him the man of God or a man of God, which is an old Israelite way of referring to a prophet. They think he's a a prophet, maybe even a a glorified prophet. And so this prophet, they believe, has come to them with this great news, this great information, this surprising information. And so they want to show some hospitality to him. They want him to, to sit down for a meal. They want to provide something to meet his needs. But the angel here declines to eat any food. Instead, he tells them to offer a burnt offering to the Lord. So when Manoah is about to do this, he asks the angel for his name so they can properly honor him when the time comes. So when, when his wife delivers the child and the word of God is fulfilled that this prophet has spoken, they want to be able to give this prophet, who they think is a prophet, the proper recognition. What is your name so that we may honor you in that time. But the angel, of course, refuses to give his name. In fact, instead he chastises the couple for even asking his name in the first place because they should recognize that his name is wonderful. See that in verse 18. We'll come back to that in a moment. Well, Manoah goes through and offers a sacrifice as the angel has instructed. And as the flame of the sacrifice rises, the angel ascends in the flame. And it's at this point they realize that this man, this man of God that they assume as a prophet is not really a man of God it's not any ordinary human individual that he is indeed the angel of the Lord and so it says that they responded promptly with humility they they bowed their face before the ground they fell prostrate to the ground and so now Manoah realizes he's been in the presence of, a, of the angel of the Lord in fact the angel of the Lord communicates God's presence himself and so he's been in the very presence of God it seems and so Manoah is Worry, he's fearful that he is going to die because he has been in the presence of the Lord. But Manoah's wife speaks some reason into him. And she explains that God accepted the sacrifice. And that because God accepted the sacrifice and because the angel had come to give them this special revelation of what he was going to do, that surely he won't kill him. Well, that scene ends... And in verse 40, 24, we see that just sort of that skips that nine-month period, right? The woman conceives, she goes through her pregnancy, and finally this child is born, and they name him Samson. Now, as we think about those previous ten verses and really into the rest of the chapter, there's a few things that are, are puzzling to this story, I think. And especially as we think about the parents and how they respond to the angel and the news that he is bringing There are some things that are more puzzling than others, but let's just walk through a few of them. First, as part of the angel's instruction to Manoah's wife, he commands her to eat nothing unclean. You look at verse 4 when he first gives the command, verse 7 when she repeats it to her husband, and verse 11 or verse 14 when the angel announces it again to this this time to Manoah. We think about the Nazarite vow, that's not one of the restrictions normally involved in a Nazarite And the reason why it's not normally part of a Nazarite vow is because it's really something that's to be observed by all Israelites, right? In Leviticus chapter 11, God lays out some very specific dietary laws for his people. And he specifies in those those laws the criteria for a clean animal, an animal that can be eaten, and an unclean animal, an animal that must not be eaten, that that are prohibited or forbidden. So those animals that meet the criteria of clean, go ahead and eat those. But those that are in the unclean category cannot be eaten. So why does the angel tell Manoah's wife not to eat unclean food if all Israelites were not supposed to eat unclean food in the first place? It seems, I'm guessing here, but it seems that she probably, she probably was eating unclean food. And if she was eating unclean food, I think you have to ask the question, well, why? If God had been already clear in his word that they were not to eat unclean food, Why is she eating unclean food? I think the fact that she's eating unclean food here reveals a deeper problem. That she and probably other Israelites either don't know God's law or are refusing to obey it. And that aligns perfectly with what we know about Israel at this time, right? Again, going back to the beginning of the book. After the death of Joshua, the writer of Judges notes in Judges 2.10... A general observation about the spiritual climate in Israel. And all that generation also were gathered to their fathers. And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So Israel, in those early days after Joshua and the elders of Israel had died, that generation that had come into the promised land that had seemed so faithful to do what God had commanded them to do, They either failed to obey the Lord out of ignorance because they didn't know, or out of deliberate disobedience because they knew what to do but just refused to do it. Manoah and his wife seem to here represent Israel's spiritual condition at this time, which explains partly their spiritual dullness to God's divine plan. Second way we see, I think, spiritual dullness among the parents is regarding this meal that... um, Manoah wants to offer to the angel. When he offers to provide a meal to the angel, the angel instead directs him to offer a burnt offering to the Lord in verse 16. If you look at verse 16, the angel of the Lord it says, said to Manoah, If you detain me, I will not eat of your food. But if you prepare a burnt offering, then offer it to the Lord. The, the, the phrasing there is a little, little interesting, maybe a little wonky. If Manoah, this is what the angel says, if you offer a burnt offering, offer it to the Lord. And my question is, well, who else would Manoah offer a burnt offering to? Isn't it obvious that if Manoah is going to offer a burnt offering, a sacrifice, that he should offer it to the Lord? Well, again, I think if we consider the spiritual climate in Israel at the time, it's not obvious. In fact, here the angel has given him specific instructions on how to offer a burnt offering, offering it to the Lord. Because, remember, who has Israel been worshipping during this time period? They've not been worshipping the Lord. They've been worshipping other gods. In fact, almost every other god, the gods of all the nations that are around them, every god that exists that they know about, they've been worshipping, except for the one that has revealed himself to them. They've not been worshipping him. And so, perhaps here, Manoah, certainly the other Israelites among among whom they lived, didn't realize that they should offer a burnt offering to the Lord. Or they were in the custom of the habit of offering that burnt offering to other gods and not to the Lord. And so this lack of awareness of the proper worship of the Lord indicates a spiritual dullness plaguing not just Manoah's parents, but the entire nation. Third aspect here of spiritual dullness, I think we can see, is, is how Samson's parents perceive their visitor. Right? How they perceive him is a little puzzling. Manoah's wife identifies this individual as a man of God, a prophet, right? But in verse 6, she also confesses to her husband that his appearance was like the appearance of the angel of God. Manoah also recognizes something special about the messenger. But he also perceives him to be a prophet. He refers to him as a man of God as well and not the angel of the Lord, or at least an angel. And yet when, he asked, when Manoah asks for the messenger's name, he says that his purpose is to give honor or to give respect to give acknowledgement to the one who has brought this news right he's received this prophecy if you will of samson's birth and when this all this happens he wants to be able to to give this man the honor that he is due for bringing this news to him but even if this individual that comes to Manoah is a man of god if he is a prophet then Manoah's aim is misdirected his goal should not be to honor the man of god whether prophet or angel But his goal should be to honor God himself. For it is God who has brought this news to him. It is God doing this wonderful work in and through his wife to bring about the deliverance of Israel. And so when the angel here, when Manoah asks the angel what his name is, the angel replies that he will not divulge his name. And he rebukes Manoah for not knowing that his name is wonderful. Now, there is a little bit of debate here. It could be that the name is wonderful, right? His name is wonderful. Just as my name is Jim... That's Tim, that's Chrissa, that's wonderful. That could be. But more likely it's an adjective here describing the situation, describing the, the, the aspect of the name as opposed to the name itself. So it seems here that Manoah wants to know the name so that he can control the situation. It's a very Hebrew way of, of thinking. That if a Hebrew, in, a, in the Hebrew culture, if you knew a person's name, you could exercise some kind of power over them. And so for Manoah to know the angel's name would be to give him some kind of power that doesn't really belong to him. But the angel here responds that his name is wonderful. And that word wonderful means to cause wonder, to, to be amazed, to be extraordinary, to marvel. The wonderful aspect of the, of the angel's name is to point to God's wondrous works. Did you see that in Verse 19. It says, so Manoah took the young goat with the grain offering and offered it to the, on the rock to the Lord, to the one who works wonders. And Manoah and his wife were watching. See, the wonderful aspect of the angel's name here is to point to the wonderful God who is doing the wonderful works, the amazing works that are going to bring salvation to his people. So it seems here that the angel is rebuking Manoah for fixating too much on him and not enough on the Lord who is doing the wondrous work of what? Of opening the barren womb, of consecrating an unexpected child, and of providing a deliverer for an oppressed people. So the angel's appearance here, the angel's message, is meant to point Manoah and his wife to the Lord, their covenant God. The last puzzling thing about this, well, there's many more, I'll just, this will be the last one. The last puzzling thing about this passage here is that Manoah's wife names her son Samson in verse 24. And Samson's name means little son. We might say sunny, S-U-N-N-Y. That's an odd name for an Israelite child. It might be fine for our culture, but it's odd for the Israelite child, for an Israelite child. Because the son was worshipped as deity By many of the foreign nations near Israel, including the Philistines, who are the ones that are oppressing the Israelites even now. In fact, not far from where Samson was born, there was a shrine, there was a center of worship for the sun God. And so it's strange that for parents who have received divine revelation, revelation from God, for what God is going to do in them, what God is going to do for his people, that they would so dishonor God by naming their son after a pagan god. And again, this seems to reflect a spiritual dullness. The spiritual dullness of the parents, I think, further illustrates the spiritual condition of Israel at this time. That as they are dull to the working of God, so also Israel is dull to their spiritual problem, to their spiritual condition, to the work that God has been doing in them and among them. And they remind us, the parents remind us, that spiritual truth can only be discerned spiritually. It can only be revealed spiritually. It can only be understood spiritually. And to that end, we have two superior advantages under the new covenant than Samson's did under the old. First, we have the complete revelation of the word of God. Manoah and his wife had it in part, but even the part that they had, either they didn't know or they failed to heed. But we've been given an even greater gift. We've been given the full written revelation of God's Word in the Bible. We have all that God intended to reveal to us there, and we can see God's full and sovereign redemptive plan from beginning to end that the Israelites didn't have. And that should give us, then, greater confidence in God, because we can see that what He promised, He also fulfilled. We can also understand and see what He requires of us as His people. If He has saved us to be a people, we can see very clearly how He wants us to live before Him. The ministry of Christ, from birth to ascension, explains clearly the totality of God's plan and His expectation for our lives. Because we have the Bible, then we've been given a great blessing. But we've also been given a great responsibility to know it and to obey it. The second advantage that we have is that we have received the Holy Spirit. And under the New Covenant, God has given to each of us the Holy Spirit. That's the promise of the New Covenant. When the New Covenant came into being, that God would, would save us. He would wipe away our sins. He would cleanse us. But He would also give to us His Spirit. The Holy Spirit teaches us spiritual truth through the Word. Because He is the author of that Word. He is the revealer of that Word. He is the interpreter of that Word. He illuminates for us the Scripture so that we have understanding and wisdom. And with that understanding and wisdom, then we are able to walk in God's way. It is the Spirit who empowers us to do the very things that Scripture commands us to do. So we should pray for the Holy Spirit to help us understand the Scriptures. We should pray for the Holy Spirit to help our pastors and our teachers who teach the Word of God So that they can make the word clear to believers and unbelievers alike. This past week we finished up our men's Bible study in the book of Colossians. And I'm reminded in Colossians 4 that Paul asked the Colossians to pray for him in his ministry so that he might make the word clear. You think about the Apostle Paul and his stature, his stature as an apostle, his stature as a preacher and teacher. And he is asking for the church. He didn't even know to pray for him so he could speak the word clearly. How is that going to happen when he is filled with the Spirit? When the Spirit is giving him the knowledge and understanding of the Scriptures and is empowering him to speak those words powerfully and boldly and clearly. May I ask you also to pray for those who preach every Sunday. To preach with the Spirit's power. With the week of preparation that I, that I have to put into these messages every week, pray that the, the Spirit would help me understand as I study, so that I'm able to bring to you the truth of God's Word, so that we can walk in these very things. So we might not be spiritually dull as the Israelites were. The last aspect of this passage is going to be very, very brief. We see God's providence in action in verses 24 and 25. The, the verse just fast forwards, doesn't it? Verse 24, Samson is born, and then boom, he is a young man who grew and the Lord blessed him, it says. So we skip all of his childhood and all of his adolescence. But we have a nice summary statement of those years. So we see that even though Samson's conception and birth involved special divine action, he also, to some degree, grew up normally. He grew, just as we all grow. And yet the Lord providentially blessed him. The Lord was with him in a special way in a unique way and at the right time we see that the, that the lord stirred him up to begin his ministry at the right time in god's sovereign plan he provided the holy spirit he sent the holy spirit the spirit of the lord to begin to stir within him this redemptive purpose this redemptive calling we've seen this in the case of a number of other judges whom God providentially provided the Spirit of the Lord to come upon, to empower them and to lead them to do God's will, to do God's work. And this is just another instance of that. We see here that the redemptive good that Samson does for Israel is not dependent upon Samson. It's not dependent upon his abilities. It's not dependent upon his wisdom. The reason why Samson succeeds is not because of him, and we'll see that in his story, It is not because of Samson. It is only because the Lord was working in and through Samson to accomplish the Lord's work. We read earlier in the chapter that God intended to begin saving his people from the hand of the Philistines. And that work would be a lengthy process that would begin with Samson but not end with him. But God would be faithful to his promises. And he begins that work in his time through Samson. And so at the end of Judges chapter 13... Everything is set in place for Samson to begin the work of deliverance. There is so much promise in Samson. There is so much expectation in Samson. He's been consecrated from birth for this very purpose. We're very excited to see how God is going to use him in this work. I don't want to spoil what's coming. But I'll just give you a little preview of the next three messages. Samson is not the answer. Not the ultimate answer. Just like Othniel, just like Ehud, Barak, Gideon, Jephthah, they were not the answer either, neither is Samson. Samson will fail. Samson will fail miserably. In fact, he'll probably fail more than any of the other judges, worse than any of the other other judges. But God is faithful. God would save his people from the hand of the Philistines just as he promised. But even more importantly, he would save his people fully and finally and completely. Not by Samson, but by one greater than Samson. You see, Israel's true hero here is not any of the judges. Certainly not Samson. But Israel's true hero is Jesus Christ. And as we saw earlier, the story of Samson foreshadows for us the story of the true Savior whom God would send to save us. He would deliver his people Not from a foreign nation, but from their ultimate oppressors. From sin, from death, from the devil. Jesus would enter our world. He would live the perfect life that we could not live. He would die on the cross to pay the penalty of our sins. And he would be raised from the dead to crush our enemies forever. It is only in Christ that we experience the eternal blessing and rest. That God promised to give to his people. And so even in the story of Samson. God is providentially working. To do something greater. It's not just to deliver Israel from the Philistines. but He is working to deliver us from our sins. He is working to bring Jesus. To the world. To fulfill his ministry. It is Jesus who is indeed wonderful. For his wondrous works have redeemed us. From our enemies. And liberated us. To be his blessed people. Forever. God was providentially working. And his providence. Has brought us to this place. And by his providence. We will be carried on even further. To the very end of all that God has promised for us. In Christ. What a great God we have. What a great savior we have. In Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Lord we are. Truly grateful for your word, and we are thankful, Lord, for this message of salvation that is literally written on every page. That even though someone like Samson, someone so highly regarded, someone who is consecrated, set apart from birth, and yet someone who would fail, we see even in here the story of Jesus. We see the story of our salvation played out. And we thank you for that. It gives us confidence to know that Jesus Christ is the Deliverer. That he did enter the world. That he did die on the cross. He he was raised again from the dead. And this was all not a spontaneous thing that you did at the last minute. But this was your plan from the very beginning. Lord, I pray you'd help us to walk in your way. To walk in this great salvation. Help us not to continue to return back to our sin. Help us not to be spiritually dull people. Lord, help us to walk in your way. Thank you for the Holy Spirit. Thank you that he gives to us illumination of your word. Help us to walk by his power. Not just today, Lord, but every day. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.